Well, this morning we're going to be doing something a little different than we normally do because it's not going to be a traditional sermon in the sense that we'll have a passage or a theme we'll be looking at. Um, this morning is going to be more of a theology lesson. Uh, specifically, we're going to be dealing with eschatology, which is the study of the end times. If you've never heard the word, eschatology comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last or final. We just finished 1 Thessalonians 4, in which we learned about what many refer to as the rapture. Lord willing, we're going to pick up our study in chapter 5 very soon. But the theme continues. Chapter 5 continues on the study of the end times and the day of the Lord. So I thought it'd be good to take a week to sort of get our bearings and do an introduction to eschatology. Eschatology is one of the 10 main disciplines of theology. You have like bibliology, soteriology. Eschatology is usually the last one you study. And it seems to be probably the least um, familiar to most Christians, uh, usually because there's an air of mystery surrounding it or because of disagreements. A lot of people assume, well, you know, experts disagree, so who am I to study it? It just sounds too scary to do on my own or too intimidating or too confusing. And I want to just use today to prepare you and and show you that that doesn't have to be the case. Um, Eschatology is not always going to have easy answers, but that doesn't mean that it's a fruitless pursuit. So again, today will be more of an introduction, kind of lay the groundwork for you to do your own study, uh, Lord willing. I, I just want to prepare you for your own journey as you start to fill in the details of of what happens uh, in the end. So sort of organize our time, we're gonna have three headings. I'm gonna start by talking about what everybody agrees to, which I think should be familiar, more of a review. Then we'll talk about where the disagreements primarily are. And then lastly, because we covered the rapture, I did wanna address that uh, in our time. I'll be mentioning a number of passages. I won't be turning to them just because uh, the interest of time, so it'll feel more like a, a seminar than a, than a sermon. But you've got your notes with you, so jot something down. You can look it up later on. Uh, let me start with where the agreements are. So we're just gonna jump right in. Lots of disagreements, and some people like that more because you get to understand where the differences are. But let me start with the agreements. What is it that Christians agree on when we talk about the end times? I'm going to give you seven of them, seven agreements. And again, these should be reviewed because we all, if we've grown up in the church, even new Christians understand these things. Number one, the first agreement should be the authority of Scripture. The authority of scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is breathed out by God. Most of you know that passage, 2 Timothy 3.16. The word scripture means that which has been written, and the ESV says breathed out by God. The idea is that what was written ultimately came from God. Yes, the prophets wrote it down with their own hand. The apostles wrote it down. But what we have in the end is the very words that God desired his people to have. And so since it's God's word, we know the scripture is true. We know it's authoritative. And we have faithful translations today. So when it comes to the end times, when it comes to any study of theology, that needs to be the starting place. Our authority is the word of God. None of us gets to invent things. Well, you know, I kind of would like to see unicorns in heaven, so let's just say there are unicorns. You can't do that, okay? So you have to understand there is maybe some room for speculation, but the framework and the starting place, the fundamental belief is the scripture is our authority. We get our doctrine from 
the Bible. Number two, we all agree on the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, by that I mean God is in charge and God is in control of everything that happens and will happen. There, is, uh, there are debates as to what that specifically means in each person's life, but the term sovereign is a biblical term. When we say God is sovereign, when he's over and in charge of everything, that doesn't mean that he approves of everything that happens in a moral sense. But it does mean that nothing is outside his power. Psalm 139 says, he has or written all my days in his book. In Acts chapter two, when they're praying, the, 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 the disciples there say, Pontius Pilate, they would include Judas, the Roman soldiers, they were against Jesus, but they were doing all that the father had ordained. It was his preordained plan. That's what sovereign means. Sovereign was an old word for a king. Whatever he says goes. Psalm uh, 115, the, the, uh, oh man, Richard. The Lord does what he pleases. What's the first half of the verse though? Our Lord is in the heavens. He does what he pleases, I think. Yeah, he does what, God does whatever he wants. That's what sovereignty means. There, there, whatever is going on in this world, we have to understand that it is part of God's plan. We, we might not like how it's going. We might wish we had more details, but none of that takes away from the sovereign power and authority of God. 1 Timothy 6.15 says, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ is something which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's Jesus. Nobody bumps God off his sovereign throne. That's the second agreement. The third agreement is the return of Christ. The return of Christ. Some of you may have grown up pledging allegiance to the Christian flag, and you would say, in our Savior, risen and coming again. This is a fundamental belief of Christianity. Christ is going to come back. Christ died, he resurrected, he's with his disciples for about 40 days, Acts 1 says, and then he ascends to heaven, and in chapter 1 of Acts, verse 11, the disciples are there staring at the clouds as Jesus ascends, and two men appear, which we take to be angels, and they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And the way you saw him go into heaven is bodily. He's physically going to return. That's the hope of Christianity. Christ will return physically. That's what the angel said. That's what the rest of the New Testament teaches. Christ our Lord will physically come again one day. The return of Christ is the third agreement. The fourth Agreement is the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead. We touched on that last week. Remember the Thessalonians thought, well, if you die, you might go to some kind of heaven, but you're not going to be united with everybody else who's alive when Christ comes. And he says, no, 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 you don't understand. They will rise. First uh, Thessalonians 4 speaks of a time when the Christians who had died would be resurrected in a glorified body. John 5, 28 Jesus says this, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And earlier, he might have been speaking metaphorically, meaning you're dead in your sins and you hear the voice of Christ and, and you will rise to salvation. But no, he's speaking now about resurrection. 
There are debates as to when exactly this is going to happen in relation to other events, whether or not it's going to happen at the same time. But everyone who accepts the scripture as God's authority believes that the dead will be raised. And what happens after they're raised are the next two agreements. Agreement number five is the judgment of sinners. And our agreement number six is the reward of the saints. This is basic Christian theology. There will be a judgment of sinners and there will be a reward for the saints. Finishing Jesus' statement in John 5, he says, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There is an eternal heaven, there is an eternal hell. There is an eternal reward for those whom Christ has mercifully called to himself and for those who have rejected him, there will be an eternal punishment. If you do a concordance lookup on the word hell, you'll find that Jesus said it more than anyone else in the Bible. There is eternal punishment and there is eternal reward. Lastly, the seventh agreement is the response of man. The response of man. If you're understanding the Bible, seeking to understand it faithfully, you have to realize that eschatology, the study of the end times, is not intended to be some detached doctrine. It's not intended to be merely an an intellectual discussion. It's supposed to affect your life now. You are supposed to live in light of the end. If you have not surrendered your life to Christ, the Bible calls you to fear of judgment. If you've trusted in Christ, if you've repented of sin, that it, the Bible says that should produce in us hope and holiness. So the, hopefully that's just a, a review, but we should start with that understanding. All faithful Christians are going to agree to those things. The authority of the Bible, the sovereignty of God, the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the judgment of sinners, the reward of the righteous, and the response of humanity. That's basic Christianity. That's what Jesus taught. That's what the disciples taught and the apostles taught. That's what the church has believed ever since it began. So I start by saying that even if you're not sure about the timeline, even if you are, you know, I just, you start talking about theology and that's just not for me. I'll let the other people discuss it, the people who care more about that. I'm really not that kind of person or I'm just confused about it all. I don't know how to do it and line it up. Take courage. Those seven areas at least are enough. You can stand on those things, study them, and apply them to your own life. I'd like you now to turn with me to the last verses of the Bible, Revelation 22. So if you have maps or indices in the back just before those, Revelation chapter 22. Despite all the disagreements between Christians regarding eschatology, We should all have the same response in thinking about the end. Revelation 22, verse 20. John is recording the words of Christ. And here's what he says. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, now he's quoting Christ, surely I am coming soon. And then John adds four words, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That should be the heart of every faithful Christian. And if I think it's Ephesians or Timothy, it speaks of those who loved his appearing. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's be done with this. Let's be reunited with our Lord. And may that happen soon. If you back up a little bit and go to verse 7 of that chapter, 
You see, Jesus there says something similar. Behold, I am coming soon. And then he adds this. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You should read Revelation. Revelation has, I think, six or seven different verses that speak of blessing to those who receive, who hear, who hear it taught. Jesus wants his followers to know the truth of the end and he expects them to respond to it accordingly. And what is the end? What does eternity look like for believers and for sinners? Go back one more chapter to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, I'm gonna read the, the opening verses there. This is John's vision. Revelation 21.1, he writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Verse five says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done, it, it, it's fixed. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. It's a restoration to the opening chapters of the Bible. God is with his people Verse eight describes the judgment of the sinners eternally, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That is eternal hell, the lake of fire, prepared originally for Satan and his demons and now for all those who refuse to repent and surrender to Christ. This is where the world is heading. This is the eternal state of joy and judgment for saints and sinners. Again, every Christian you talk to should have that expectation. If, if they don't believe that's where this is heading, they have a serious problem with their view of scripture. So those are, again, our, our agreements. But as you, most of you know, there's a lot of things that we, we disagree about. So that'll be our next topic. What are the disagreements? We all agree there's an eternal state of joy and judgment. The disagreement comes with how do we get there? So you might be driving home from somewhere with your spouse and you decide, take this path, no, take this path. In the end, we all know we're going home. But the debate is, how do we get there? What's the path? 
How do we go from life as we know it today into the eternal state which begins in Revelation 21? For the agreement portion of the message, I gave you seven points. For the disagreement portion, I'm just gonna give you one. And this one principle, I believe, is what sets the course for other decisions that you make regarding end times. The way I see it, the the, the primary disagreement is this, and I'm gonna frame it initially as a question. Here's the question you have to answer. How literal or how direct do you believe end times passages should be interpreted? That's the question you have to answer as you study this issue. How literal or how directly should we interpret and apply end times passages? The academic term for this is hermeneutics. Some of you have been exposed to that term. That just refers to the principles you use when you study scripture. I believe this is the dividing issue when it comes to end times prophecies. It's a hermeneutical discussion. Some might say it's a little oversimplistic to put it that way, but but that's the way I see it. I think there are two main approaches. And again, there's a spectrum, all kinds of different beliefs. I'm trying to boil it down to, I think, the starting point. You can have a system that prefers to take eschatological passages at face value. That's what it says, that's what I believe. Or you can have a system that allows for those passages to be interpreted in a non-literal way. To me, that's the basic difference. There are pastors and brothers who, who we will agree with on letters to Paul. Then you go to eschatological passages and that's the difference. Are we trying to interpret this literally, directly, or do we think there's some room to to allow for, for a more spiritual interpretation? When you go to end times passages like Revelation or the second half of Daniel, which we covered uh, last year, when we're reading right now Zechariah and then we're gonna read Malachi and all the other, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you read those prophecies. Are you going to take those in a more literal way or do you think we can apply them in a non-literal way? That's the question. And I want to show you a couple examples just so you can uh, see how this works out in theology. Before that, let me give you two clarifications now because we're talking about differences. First, I today am speaking for myself. I'm not speaking on behalf of a denomination. I'm not speaking on behalf of the elders. I'm going to share some of my personal positions on issues like this. Part of that is because as a pastor, I want to help you understand the issue, and then I want to be faithful to my own convictions. But the second caveat here is that there are disagreements, and the disagreements we're talking about now are not at the level of heresy or false teaching. So it is okay as you listen, if you think, I I don't see it that way, that's okay. That's why there are different systems. It's okay if you end up disagreeing with my position or we disagree with each other. I have pastor friends who are on different sides of of these issues. I love them. I'm grateful to God for them and for their ministries. I'm grateful to partner with them for the glory of God. So I don't want want you to take today and say, you know, my pastor said everybody believes this. They're wrong. You know, that's not what's going to happen. I'm not trying to disparage anybody who doesn't share my views. If this were an easy topic, we'd have much less disagreement. We'd all move forward and know what's happening. So those are my two clarifications. I'm speaking for myself. I'm not trying to disparage those who disagree. This is not a heresy issue. But let me show you what this hermeneutical divide looks like with a couple examples. And we'll just stay here in Revelation. Go back one more chapter to Revelation chapter 20. 
Revelation chapter 20. If you have a heading, ESV says the thousand years. Let me read it. Revelation 20 says this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and, I, and seated on them were those, who commi- were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. That's the vision. We're just reading it from scripture. How are we to receive this vision? What are we to make of it? ESV starts with the word then. Then is a sequential term. It indicates that this is the very next vision John received. We're gonna agree, that's the next vision. But should the word then, in that case, be taken to mean that John is describing things that are yet to come? That's a dividing question. John also says that this period is going to last a thousand years. So some refer to it as the millennium or the millennial kingdom. Somehow in John's vision, maybe you had this in a dream, you, 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 you sense the passage of time. He understood a thousand years had passed in this vision. But in the vision, should that thousand year period be taken literally in terms of how it relates to the end times? Is John describing a literal thousand year period? That's another question people divide on. Again, it depends on how literal you want to take this. John also says that during this time, Satan is bound in a pit. Everyone agrees. That's what John saw. An angel threw Satan into a pit. But does that vision indicate a literal binding of Satan that will take place in some celestial reality with a pit and a lid and a chain? Or are we to understand this as something more symbolic, demonstrating some kind of restriction on Satan's activity? Those are the kinds of questions that people disagree about. I am on the side that believes we should interpret John's visions more literally than symbolically. So I I don't mean to say there are no symbols here, but I mean that when you read symbols like the beast or a thousand years, I believe they point to actual events and actual beings and actual periods of time. 
So for me personally, in general, unless there's a compelling reason not to apply the vision more directly to events, that's what I'm going to do. That's the side of the spectrum I personally fall on. I take things at face value, even in end times passages, which some will, you'll hear them say apocalyptic passages. That just means visions, dreams related to the end times. So for me, when I read about a thousand year kingdom in which Satan is bound, confined to a pit, separate from the earth, I compare that to what else the Bible says about Satan. It says he's the God of this world. I compare that to what Peter says about Satan when it says he's a a, a lion seeking someone to devour. And I, because I take this literally, I don't see how that matches, so I don't take this thousand year period as some present day reality. I see it as something yet to come. I also see the phrase 1,000 years. It's used six times between verses two and seven, and I think that matters. If it's, if it's only symbolic, why would you have to repeat it so many times? I think this refers to a literal thousand year period. Again, I have friends, pastor brothers who disagree. That's okay, you can disagree, but that's the view I take. If you go back, if you wanna read this week, Revelation, it's a great book to read. Revelation six through 18 describes what many refer to as the great tribulation. I take it more literal. So I read it. I read about the vast number of people who are going to die. I read about cataclysmic events like the sun being darkened and islands disappearing. I read about a world trembling in fear, hoping to die. I read about a third of the earth being burned. I read about a third of the earth's ships being destroyed and a third of the earth's rivers turning to poison. And because I take that as a literal and direct reference to global events, I do not think we're in the great tribulation. I don't think it has happened either. I think think if the great tribulation is the freeway, I think we're on the on-ramp, so to speak. We're moving that direction. We have previews of those kinds of things. But what's happening now, I don't take to be the fulfillment of Revelation 6 to 18. Again, because I, I receive it more literally. A third of the earth is going to die. I don't believe things are happening today to the degree described in the Bible. But the other side that takes it more spiritually, they will see passages like the Great Tribulation or even the Millennial Kingdom, and they say, no, these are describing general truths or not necessarily literal. So, so it could be applied to something that already happened or something that's happening today. Some people think that uh, what Israel experienced in the year AD 70 when the Romans came in, so Israel, Jesus dies, he resurrects, the church is growing. The, the Jews, even if though they didn't believe in Christ, they want their independence as a nation. They rebel against the Romans. They come in, General Titus decimates the city. Remember Jesus said, no, uh, no stone will be left upon another. They, the, the temple is gone. That happened in AD 70. People were starved to death. Accounts of people eating their children. Okay, some people say that's what the Great Tribulation is, was, is describing. So rather than apply it globally, they're applying it to the nation of Israel in AD 70. Others will read the Great Tribulation and say, well, see, that's describing what the church experience is right now because we live in a hostile world. And it's a global description, meaning we're not gonna experience it to the same degree all the time, but you read about Boko Haram in Nigeria and Christians being killed 
by a herdsman, Fulani herdsman, and you say this is part of the tribulation that Revelation describes. So, so that camp, they're not gonna interpret the plagues of Revelation literally in every sense. What they see there is a general description of pain and tribulation for Christians. And those who take that view will also do something very similar with the millennial kingdom. They will say the millennial kingdom is a description of the victory that we Christians have over Satan. It's the victory that the church experiences while the gospel is proclaimed. So that, that, that's another, another view. They, they take the great tribulation and they take the millennial kingdom and they say these are two different realities that are happening right now in the church. There, there's tremendous pain because the world hates Christ and there's also great victory because the gospel continues to spread. I, I, I agree with those truths in a general sense, but I don't see that that's what Revelation 4 through 20 is describing. Again, if you believe that's the case, that's all right. Just know that you're not giving, because it's apocalyptic, it's apocalyptic, but you're not giving it a, a literal or, or direct fulfillment. Does that make sense to you? That's, that's the divide when you deal with eschatology. Either you interpret the vision more literally or directly, or you take these visions like dreams and you take them as general truths which don't have to connect to specific literal world events. That's the fundamental disagreement. Because I take a more literal approach to interpretation, I then don't see Revelation as describing different present realities. I take Revelation as describing an actual sequence of events. There will be a great tribulation. That's what you read in Revelation 6 to 18. I believe that will be followed by the glorious return of Christ on the earth in which he establishes a literal millennial thousand year kingdom. That will be followed by a final battle and then we go into the eternal state. Now, the reason I think the millennial kingdom is literal is because I take Old Testament prophecies literally as well and the millennial kingdom allows for the fulfillment of those prophecies. So we're, again, we're reading Zechariah. We're gonna get to the end of Zechariah and, and God is promising the restoration of Israel. They're gonna get the land. They're gonna be God's instrument of judgment in the world. There, there's, there's sin being described in the world and yet, and yet it's, it's Christ ruling in Israel being his instrument of, 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 of judgment and justice. Well, you have to put that somewhere. Some people think we'll get to that on its own. The world will naturally be Christianized. Israel will recognize Christ as their Messiah and, and will move there and it'll happen by itself. Some people believe that. Others say, no, no, no. These are describing spiritual things. We as the church are receiving the blessings that God promised Israel. It's better than a physical Blessing. It's, it's the spiritual blessing. Just like the gospel goes out. That's like what Israel, when, when God says Israel is going to rule the world, he means that his people are going to be everywhere in the world and that's what's going to happen. Again, when you take passages literally though, you have to have some room for, for these things. Look, at, You don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 65, 19, it says in that verse, God is going to rejoice in Jerusalem. The city will be restored, and, and Isaiah 65, 20 says, the young man shall die a hundred years old. If you take it metaphorically, you just say, time of great blessing. But to take it literally, you go, well, if I take it literally, when is that going to happen? The young man will die a hundred years old. That can't be now, because none of us say, oh, poor guy, he only made it to a hundred. Or that's not us. 
Okay, it can't be the eternal state, if you take it literally, because no one's gonna die in the eternal state. You live forever. So where is that? Well, having a thousand year kingdom of, of, of Christ where he's ruling, and even though there's sin in the world, it allows for that place. God is fulfilling his promises to Israel. And, and, and also you have Old Testament presentations of, of God's kingdom in which Israel rules. I don't think those have yet come to pass. Israel is, is waiting for that. Not just getting rid of sin, but, but some primary role for Israel. And, and that's part of the divide. There's an interesting note in the opening verses of Acts. Remember, Jesus appears to his disciples after his resurrection. It says he spent a period of 40 days And it tells us what he did during those 40 days. It says he taught them about the kingdom. That's what verse three says of Acts one. Taught them about the kingdom. And then in verse six, it says the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That that tells me that the disciples expected a literal fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus doesn't correct them. Oh, you misunderstood. It's, It's a church thing now. I'm done with Israel. He doesn't say that. He tells them, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons fixed by the Father. You go do your job in the meantime. Your job is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, go proclaim the message. But he doesn't tell them they're wrong. He took 40 days, 40 days teaching them about the kingdom. So I think it's, I think the millennium allows a time for us to fulfill those prophecies in the earth. Now, before we close, um, I told you I'd talk about the rapture, so I'm going to do that briefly. If we take the order prescribed in Revelation, where does that put the rapture? So Revelation has, the first three chapters are letters to the churches, that's right now. You have a great tribulation, you have a thousand year kingdom, then you have the eternal state. Where is the rapture then? That's one of the debates. There is no biblical passage specifically telling us when the rapture will take place. Some people think it'll happen before the tribulation. Some people think it'll happen in the middle of the tribulation. Some people think it'll happen after the tribulation. Personally, I am in the category that believes the rapture will be at at the beginning, before the tribulation. So let me just give you three arguments for that. None of these are ironclad because it's a debate. All kinds of things people disagree on. But number one, the Bible describes the return of Christ in two different ways. On the one hand, it says it's something that can happen at any moment. You need to be ready. It's, it's imminent. At any moment, Christ will move into the next phase of the world. But there also are descriptions in the Bible where Jesus tells his people, specifically Israelites, you need to watch for the signs of my coming. I mean, why, why tell people about the signs if, if, if you don't want them to actually look for them and know them? So on the one side, he says, be ready at any moment. And then he says, look for my signs. How do you reconcile those things? Well, if you place the rapture before the tribulation, you reconcile them because you have the Christians living at this time. They're going to be raptured at any moment. There's no uh, divine event left on God's calendar. And then, even though Christians are taken, during the tribulation, you have people who will come to faith. You know, I think the book of Daniel will be used during that time to Christians, and then you have the nation of Israel being used by God to proclaim the truth. Many people will come to faith, many will be martyred for their faith, but that generation will then be able to see the signs, which we talked about in the book of Daniel, and you can read about in uh, Revelation with with all these severe things that will happen. So you have a generation of, of Christians that sees the return of Christ in some immediate, unexpected way, then you have a generation that also can see signs leading up to it. 
There is a downside, though, and I talk about this with my pastor friends. The downside is you have Christ coming to rapture the church, though he doesn't come all the way to the earth, and then he officially comes to the earth at the end of the tribulation, which can feel to some like that's three coming. He came, and then he comes for the rapture, and then he comes for the, for, at the end of the tribulation and, and inaugurates the millennial kingdom. And some people, they'll say, that's three appearances. I don't like that. And I'm on the side that goes, yeah, you know what? To me, it's all the second coming, but his second coming has phases as well. That, that's all we can say. So that's one argument, that it, it, it preserves imminence, this idea that we need to be ready at any time. A second argument for the pre-tribulation rapture is that the rapture, uh, 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 the, 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 the tribulation is presented as God's wrath upon the earth. He's, he's purging the world. He's expressing his, his wrath. And the Bible says that we will be spared the wrath of God. So there are, there are debates. Some people think, no, the beginning of the, of the tribulation is, is, is Satan's anger or it's the world you know, sowing its own, uh, uh, you know, reaping its own seed and, and uh, reaping what they sowed. And then God's wrath is in the middle, so that's why they moved the rapture there. I think it just makes more sense to take the whole tribulation as God's wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that would also bring true comfort when, when um, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He said, they're gonna rise. It's better for them. You're gonna see Christ. He, he wasn't saying, hey, it's gonna be really bad, guys, because the tribulation's gonna start. And, you know, he, he, he was describing it as a hopeful, joyful thing. There's also Revelation 3.10. Jesus tells the church in Philadelphia, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. He doesn't say, I'm gonna protect you. He doesn't say, I'm gonna to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it safe for you, like the way Israel was kept safe during the Egyptian plagues. He says, I'm keeping you from the hour of trial, almost as if you won't even be there for that time period. So that, again, not directly, not explicit, but that's another argument. A third one comes from the book of Revelation, but it's an argument from silence, and that is that the word church is used plenty of times. I think it's 15 times in Revelation 1 through 3. Once you get to chapter four, all the way to verse chapter 20, the word church is not mentioned at all. The word is not used, which I think makes sense because the tribulation is no longer God dealing specifically with the mystery of the church. He has removed the church and he's now returning to fulfill his promises to Israel. There's going to be a purging in Israel and then there will be a national revival. So if you read Revelation, it talks about 12,000 from each tribe coming to know the Lord. I take that literally. So that will be a, a, a generation of, of, of uh, Israelites. But that's just, that, that's just the argument. The word church isn't there. So hopefully that has produced all kinds of questions in your mind. That's what eschatology does. It never really runs out of questions. There's always debates, and it produces more variations on positions. If you begin to study, you'll find all kinds of terms describing the different views people take and the sub-views. I wanted to give you a general framework to understand it. And, and in closing, I simply want to repeat what we, what we said at the beginning. Whatever your theological position is about how we get to the eternal state, know that Christ intends us to live in light of it. Christ intends us to keep the end in mind. We fix our hope on him, 1 John 3 says, and we purify ourselves. We're gonna have disagreements now as we study the Bible, but no one's gonna be in the internal state going, nee, 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 I was right, you were wrong. No one's gonna be doing that. 
we are going to be forever praising our Lord and our Savior because he has saved us. And we'll celebrate that tonight as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your kindness toward us. Uh, we're grateful for your word, which, which gives us truth and hope. We pray that you help us uh, be better students of the word, help us to take seriously your promises of judgment, your promises of salvation. And we pray in understanding these things, you would give us a boldness and urgency in proclaiming the message of Christ. We want to echo what John said, Father. Send, Lord Jesus, we pray you come quickly. Amen.